The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. God be near to us. God, reveal yourself to us. God, come near and show yourself to me. Make yourself known to me. That, that's really the words of that uh, song. And uh, so often it is our prayer. I'm going to put a word of caution out there. Sometimes when God reveals himself to us and he answers that prayer, he answers it in such a categorically different way than we ever could have imagined. Because God presents himself as himself. And in that, we say that he's outside the box. That's such a poor description. He categorically is different than everything. We don't have categories to understand him fully uh, and who he is. And and in that self-revelation of God to us, his people, to the world, he undoes us. We, We become, as Isaiah said, he was in the presence of God and he goes, oh no, I am undone. Basically, everything that I thought that I understood, everything I thought I knew about this God has been unraveled instantaneously in his presence because he is greater than I ever could have imagined. Uh, He is more wonderful, more powerful, more generous, more gracious, more just, more holy, more whatever it is. And it's not that he's just outside the box. There is no box. And and we have to wrestle with him. And, And at times, it's a frightening uh, revelation that God gives to us, and the the passage of scriptures that we're looking at, passages of scripture that we're looking at today, um, in Exodus chapter seven through ten, uh, are God's revealing Himself, God making Himself known to a people, to two really two different people groups. One group of people who knew Him. Uh, and needed him to return, needed him to, to remind them of himself, to say, I'm still here, I am your God, I'm faithful, this is who I am, and I'm going to fulfill my promises. I have the power to fulfill the promises that I've made for you and to your forefathers. So he was revealing himself to his people again, and so today he is revealing, re-revealing himself to us, his church, his people, to assure us of many, many things. But he's also revealing himself to a people who didn't know him. And he's revealing himself in power in that way to challenge them, to dismantle their frameworks and to lead them to, to deal with him, really. And so this idea of knowing God and having a God who desires to be known leads to a wonderful introduction by John Piper. He says this, How shall we know God? How shall we know what God is like and how how we are to think about Him? When I ask myself this question, one response comes crashing into my mind with overwhelming certainty. Human opinion counts for nothing. What you feel about the way God should be and what I feel about the way God should be counts for nothing. If someone rises up and makes a pronouncement about what they can believe and can't believe about God, that is as significant in determining what is true about God as the creaking of a window in the wind. Human opinion counts for nothing in defining God. How then shall we know him? For it is very crucial that we know him. 
If he is there, and he is, nothing in the universe matters more than he does. If he is there, he is like the thunderclap, and we are like the scratch on a faint recording. If he is there, he is like the sun shining in full strength, and we are like a dust mote floating in the morning beam of a bedroom light. If he is there, he is absolute, and we are utterly dependent. To know God. How shall we know God? That should be uh, at the very depth of the question for a created being. How should we know our creator? How do we get to know him? Uh, If he is there and he is, how do I know him? How do I get to know him? Uh, Do I even believe in him? What's my opinion of him in in that sense of do I believe in him? Am I going to place my trust in him? What's my relationship and engagement with him? And that's the question that that we're facing this morning of this God who desires to be known, the God who wants us to know him. I don't know why you're here this morning. It's a myriad of reasons. But I know this much. God wants you here and has you here so that he can make himself known to you today. Not by my opinion. Not by what I have to say But he reveals himself to us in his word. And today we're going to be looking at some very troubling passages. We're going to be looking at passages of scripture where God comes and he's not sweet. And he's not Santa-like. And he's not cuddly. Uh, he, He is not in the construct of a human uh, idea of what this God is going to be like. And he's going to force you to deal with him on his terms. We like to deal with God on our terms. We like to negotiate with God. We like to set up parameters. And we, we barter, we argue, we do all that. God is coming and he's saying through his word, you have to deal with me on my terms. And folks, some of this isn't palatable for the human heart and the emotion of the human mind and, and soul. Because it's difficult. The movie's really cool, by the way. Plagues and locusts and, and blood in the river and darkness and hail and boils and, and all of that stuff. It's really cool. And it plays well. But in reality, what's happening is a systematic dismantling of a people's view of their God's. And in its place, God is saying, unless you turn, unless you are willing to be ruled by me, you will be judged by me. We we love Palm Sunday. Because Palm Sunday is the sweet little picture of Jesus on a little little colt and coming in and, and it's all sweet and good. The reality is the next time Christ comes, he comes riding on a horse, bearing a sword. And it's not to save at that moment, but to judge and say, I am the king and I've come to establish my rule. And so in this interim period that we have, the time of his sweet first entrance and his not so sweet second entrance, we have to then wrestle with profound and deep and eternal questions. And the question for us today is, how is this God known? And do we believe what's shown to us? So, 
We're going to look at three things uh, this morning. First, we're going to see that we have a very massive problem. There is a problem that needs to be solved. There is a solution. There's a remedy uh, to that problem. And then the final thing is this, what are we going to do about it? What's our action? What's going to be our response? So the problem, the remedy, and the response uh, to these things. Here's the problem. Exodus 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The problem is this. We can't know God. Unless he reveals himself to us. That's a massive problem for humanity. That we can't on our own know God. Unless he determines to self-reveal himself to us. And so we find ourselves in all of humanity uh, uh, wrestling with this. And Pharaoh came to the decision. I don't know this God. He's unknowable to me. I'm not in relationship with him, and therefore I outright and utterly reject him and all that he stands for in anything and anyone that he sends my way. And some of you may be sitting in that category today. I don't know God. I don't know him. I don't want to know him. He hasn't revealed himself to me, and I'm not really searching for him. But the problem behind all of that is is simply this. None seek God. No, not one. All are at enmity with God. God has revealed his truth to man, that he's given his truth to man. Romans 1, uh, that we would know him, but we have suppressed uh, the truth and the reality of God in unrighteousness, that we've taken it and decided we don't want to know him. And so uh, we're in this dilemma. How can we know God? How can we get to know him? If that's the biggest question in the universe, and by the way, that's what philosophy tries to answer, That's what religion tries to answer. Secularism tries to answer. Everything tries to answer this knowing of the universe, this knowing of something out there. How can we know? How how can we determine? And for most all of them, it starts, its starting point is with humanity. That humanity begins by saying, I will ascend to the hill. I'll build uh, the Tower of Babel and I'll ascend into the heavens. That I'll figure it out on my own based on my own smarts, on my own good looks, on my own uh, initiative. I'm going to go and I'm going to learn all of these things about God. And we approach it in that way. But we bump into the wall which says this. God can't be known unless he reveals himself to us. That God has to condescend himself in order to be known. And so we all find ourselves in the place of Pharaoh, who says, I don't know God. And we talked a couple of weeks ago, we find ourselves in the place of Moses, who knew of God, but necessarily didn't know God until God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And and so that's the starting point. That's the problem, that we can't know God unless God reveals himself uh, to us, which is a Interesting point, by the way, there's an argument against Christians, and the argument against Christians is this, you all are so arrogant to say that you know God, 
How can you say that you would know the God of the universe? And the reality is this. The incredibly humble response is the only way that I can possibly know God is that he revealed himself to me. That God made himself knowable. That that God revealed himself to me. It's not a matter of pride uh, that I approach this with a matter of incredible humility and a matter of of great self-knowledge. That I know that I never would have known God unless God, out of his rich mercy, made himself known to me. You see, the problem that we have is no one knows God on their own unless God reveals himself to us. So then we have to figure out, then what's the solution? What do we do with that? What happens? Well, here's the great news. The remedy is this. God reveals himself to us. I mean, there's the problem. God, we can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, said, here's how I'm going to introduce myself uh, to all of humanity, that they will be without excuse. I'm going to create the world. I'm going to create the world. There is a general, it's called in theological terms, a general uh, revelation that God reveals himself to all of humanity through his creation. And he says, look around you today, folks. Look around and see that I've made all things. That the most important words of the first of Genesis are these words. In the beginning, God created. Uh, That the doctrine of creation, uh, the doctrine of there being a creator and a creator, a a creature, is so important because it reveals that there is something beyond us. That there is something outside of us that spoke uh, into the world. And that's why it it is so damaging. uh, The arguments of evolution. The arguments uh, from the position. Especially in the new atheists who are coming uh, and presenting. In this sort of new evolutionary thought. uh, That's sweeping and going. Is that it it attacks one of the very ways. That God said this is how I reveal myself to the world. And so, here's my encouragement to you. Don't run away uh, from learning and studying evolutionary thought, but know it well enough and so well that you can engage it and point out uh, the inconsistencies in that and present in that the beauty of a creator who says, I've created all things. It's the dilemma of uh, the evolutionary scientist who had a conversation with God. And he said... God, let's each get us a cup of dirt, and I'll show you how evolutionary process begins. God says, I'll take that challenge. And they started to go, and God looked at him and said, oh, one thing though, you got to get your own dirt. <laughs> God created all things out of nothing, that by the mere speaking of his voice, It all came in. And the attacks against the beauty of that creation and against mankind who is differentiated from all the other created things that we are made in the image of God. That there is something special and unique uh, about humanity. And it is another one of those ways, a part of the remedy. The remedy for us not being able to know God unless he reveals himself is he says, I'm going to reveal myself to you through creation and most especially within creation through those who bear my image. That they are not, they are not a, a mere collection of molecules and of cells. They are not a chance and they are not a choice. But they bear my likeness 
And you can look into humanity and in that way see the creative nature of our God. And that's why all of this stuff that's happening in our world today, it's bad in and of itself, but the backside of that, the, of that is the theological damage that it's doing. I'm saying that's one of the greatest ways that God reveals himself to us. is through creation. But the other way that God reveals himself to us is through his word. Special revelation. That's why this book is so important. Presbyterians, historically, were known as people of the book. That you studied the book. You knew the book. Because I can know that there is a God out there in the world... But I can't know him perfectly and specifically and even savingly unless he has revealed himself even more. And by his Holy Spirit, through the writers of Scripture, preserved 66 books over all of this time. That we can go and we can learn all of his unique attributes and his designs. uh, All of those things. And so God has revealed himself through all of creation. He's revealed himself in his word. Which again, there's a massive attack on the truth of God's Word. Andrew Shank and I were just at a conference, and we talk about God's Word as truth. And the speaker was saying, Bill, you can use the word truth, uh, and you can say, guys, you can say the word truth, but what you're, many in your congregation, especially many of the younger ones are hearing, is truth is a social construct. Truth is something uh, that we create in and of ourselves, and, and that we determine it to be true if I believe it to be true. God's Word is saying, no, 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 this is true truth. This is truth that supersedes everything else and that it is what shapes and forms us. We don't get to shape and form it. And so God reveals himself to us, not in abstracts, but in absolutes, that he reveals himself to us through his word. And he is passionate about making himself known. He's passionate about making himself known, which is where we're going to pick up in chapter 7 through 10, if you're wondering. You're probably going, gosh, you're gonna, when are you going to get to the Bible, actually? You're talking about his word. Well, this is where we're going to get to it, where, where God comes, and, and we're jumping around a bit, but I'm going to give you some, some things to write down, and you can look at them more fully later. But God comes, and, and he sends Aaron, and he sends Moses into the presence of Pharaoh, and he says this, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to read just the first few verses Because it really sets the stage for everything else. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like like a God, uh, like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Did you pick up on it? God, through general revelation, through special revelation, reveals himself. But here's the underlying thing behind it. God is passionate to make himself known. Look at verse 5. Then the Egyptians shall know 
that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring my people out. That the reason God was stretching out his hand, the reason God was bringing his people out was so that everyone would know that he's God. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, uh, but be as, it, as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 9, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed. My name may be known in all the earth. Chapter 10, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God is revealing himself to you that you would know that he is God. He is revealing himself to you and not simply introducing himself and saying, hey, uh, I'm God. You can add me to a list of other gods that you may have. You can add me into your repertoire of friends and deities that you've got around. No, he's saying, I want you to know who I am so that you can deal with me on my terms. And what he begins to do in this self-revelation, that when the remedy uh, that God has for us is that he's so passionate about making himself known Uh, through his word and through creation. And another way that he makes himself known to us is this. Part of his remedy is this. God's self-revelation demonstrates the futility of all other gods. God's self-revelation to us, basically what he does is he demonstrates the futility of our service to other gods. I don't have time to fully do it, but I hope that you take advantage every week uh, that Andrew Shank uh, will write... um, uh, a blog or, uh, what's the better word for that? Is that right? Is that good? I show my generational uh, age sometimes. Um, but he, he writes, and this week, and, and it's about worship, and it's about some of the themes that we're dealing with. This week he's talking in more detail than I'm going to uh, about this section of God is dismantling through these plagues the gods of Israel. That the one true God is dismantling all the other gods of of Egypt. I mean, excuse me, of Egypt. And it begins with the staff. In chapter 7, that Moses walks in with the staff, and the staff in his hand, and he throws it down, and it becomes a a serpent. It most likely became a cobra. Well, it's interesting that it became a cobra, because the cobra was a sign uh, that was on the cloak of Pharaoh, and it was on the crown of Pharaoh in the center of that asp, of of that cobra spread out. And so God came and he said, look, and watch this miracle that takes place. Well, the magicians of Egypt had power too and in the dark arts. And it indicated that they threw down their staffs and their staffs became snakes as well. You may go, oh no, God's been thwarted. See, the evil side can do it. But then it says, no, God's staff, his snake ate and devoured the snakes of Pharaoh. What he was saying there to Pharaoh was beginning the battle. The battle's not between Moses uh, and, and Pharaoh. The battle's not between Egypt and Israel. The battle is between Yahweh and all other gods. And that's what God in his revelation into your life does as well. When he reveals himself in your life, he is going to reveal himself in such a way that dismantles anything else that you're serving. 
Anything else in your life uh, that you are, are going towards for life, he will dismantle and show himself to be the true God. Not because he's punitive and mean, and not because he has to prove that he's the biggest kid on the playground, and not because his ego is so weak that he has to be built up and show how strong he is because everybody's weak, but because he loves you enough to show the ineptitude and the impotency of every other God in the world other than him. And he begins it right here in Egypt, and he says, I'm greater than your God. I'm greater than the snake. And then he goes, now, the first sign that he does was what? It was about the Nile River. Oh, big deal. He turned a river. Oh, but the river Nile, happy, H-A-P-I, was the God of the Nile, and it was the giver of life for all of Egypt. That Egypt existed because the Nile existed. That there was life in Egypt because there was life in the Nile. And God stepped up to the plate and he said, here's my first miracle among you. I'm going to turn your God happy into blood. I'm going to destroy him and I'm going to keep him pinned down for seven days. He was the God of fertility, uh, that it was a God depicted in the hieroglyphics as having a male head uh, with uh, a female chest uh, and pregnant, of showing that happy was the God of fertility and of life, uh, that was giving life. And Yahweh stepped on the scene and said, watch this, with just merely stretching out my hand in a staff, I'm going to destroy and hold happy in uh, death for seven days. And then he went out and he said, now watch, and I'm going to take on, and if you go through and see, uh, there's a wonderful study by a gentleman named John Currid. He was my professor in seminary and Andrew's professor in seminary and, and others, uh, that Currid really deals with these things. But every one of the plagues, the frogs and the insects and the livestock and the boils uh, and the hail uh, and all of those things are dealing with the different gods, the different deities of Egypt systematically destroying them, systematically showing them to have absolutely no power to do what they promised to do. And the last two, the, the last one that we're going to deal with today, then next week we're going to be talking about the death of the firstborn uh, and the Passover, but the last one had to do with darkness. Interesting, because in Egypt, the sun was a god, the powerful god. Ra, it was the God, and that Pharaoh was Ra incarnate. And so for God to come and to say, now for three days, Moses, for three days, there's going to be darkness over all of the land. And he consumed the sun God in that way. And he allowed, he was so powerful that he basically told the sun where it could shine and where it couldn't shine. Because he said, son, you can't shine over any and anywhere you want to. You're only going to shine over my people in Goshen. But everywhere else is going to be dark. And basically what he did is he took the God uh, of the sun captive and showed his power above it. It was like me when I was a, a young youth pastor. I thought I was great at it. I was 20-something years old, and there were all these kids, and I'm keeping up with them on the beach. And there was young, one young man uh, in particular who was a very strong uh, young man, and, uh, but he was 14. And I was like, I'm 23. I got this. And he came from behind me, and he picked me up and squeezed me so hard that I could barely breathe. And he carried me out into the waves at Wrightsville Beach, and he giggled as the waves smashed on my face. 
And then he would turn me around and say, you had enough? And I was like, I want to get you. And he would turn me back just to show me that he was stronger than me. And I felt incredibly helpless. And that's sort of the picture I have in my mind of what God is doing to all of the gods of Israel. He's saying, I am so much stronger than you are. That in my presence, you aren't a God at all. That he's destroying them systematically along the way. Here's where that makes sense to you and me. We don't deal with Nile rivers very often. We don't deal with flies. We don't deal with locusts. We don't deal with dead cattle and livestock and hail. We don't deal with boils on our bodies. We don't deal with darkness and the death of our firstborn. So you may go, what's all this about? Well, here's how God reveals himself to you when you say, God, I want to know you. And that's why it's such a dangerous but such an important prayer and a request of God. Sometimes as he enters into your life, what he's going to do is show the absolute impotence of everything else that you're serving. He's going to say to you who have said of your relationships, I have to have these relationships in order to be happy, in order to have life in this world. I've got to have this. Here's a good question for you that I was asked one time. And the question goes something like this. Consider whatever it is in your life right now that if it was taken from you, that you would consider and wonder whether life was worth living at all. Whatever that is, be it your family, your loved one, your child, your job, your wealth, your looks, that if it was taken from you, you would consider whether life was worth, worth, worth living at all. Well, whatever it is that you've put in that place, and all of us have something, if we're honest. We all wrestle with it. I, I am in absolute amazement of some of you who have wrestled and gone through the loss of a child. I don't know how I would deal with that. The loss of a spouse. The loss of everything that we had. But if whatever it is that is taken from us makes us think, man, is life even worth living? Whatever that thing is, you're serving. It is your God. It has incredible power over you. And you are willing to do whatever you have to do to make it happy. You were willing to sacrifice your integrity. You were willing to sacrifice your family for it. You were willing to sacrifice all kinds of things, wealth and reputation. You're willing to sacrifice to keep that thing because that idol, that God promises you something. That God promises you that if you serve it, if you do this, then you'll be happy. If you get it, then you'll be happy. I was a singles pastor and I heard for so long from college and singles that if and when, that they'd only be happy. If they got married. And then they got married. And you know what they said to me next? I'll be happy when I have a child. And then, oh, I'm going to be happy when I know and I'm sure that my children are going to be okay. Defined by whatever I say okay is. Then I'll be happy at that point. And then I'll be happy, and our country, think about the millions, if not billions of dollars spent on making sure that these bodies uh, remain in good shape. I've got a shape, it's just different shape. It's a rounder, less harsh shape. But we spend billions of dollars because we look in a mirror, and the God of that mirror says this, if you look this way, 
then you'll be happy. If you look this way, then you'll be loved. If you look this way, then you'll be successful. If you maintain it into your latter years, then somehow uh, you're going to have life. And you know what happens to every single one of those? Here's how much God loves you. He reveals the lies of your idols. I'm going to ask you a risky question. Men, I already know you're too scared to answer it. But has your spouse ever disappointed you? Anybody? See, I knew it. It's like men are like, I'm not about to say that. Andrew did because his wife's not around. Yeah, she did. Uh, Now that's on tape forever. Uh, So the person that we love most in this world disappoints and hurts us. And for so many people that devastates them. Parents, have your children ever disappointed you? Yeah? Kids, this one's for you. Have your parents ever disappointed you? Yeah. See, the, the fact about that, even you adults, your kids, because you could have answered that question twice. Yeah, my parents disappointed me, and I'm sure that I've disappointed my children. They all, and God is so loving that he's willing to reveal the ineptitude of everything else that we demand life from. He's willing to dismantle them and to say, that's not your life. Your career is not your life. Your looks are not your life. Your relationships are not your life. I am. Because here's what happens when you pursue something other than God. It goes something like this. I worked in a place, and I loved it. It was a wonderful place that I worked. But there was this moving target every year in my annual evaluation. And the moving target was, if you do these things this year, if you work on these things this year, then we're going to give you this promotion. And I would work really hard, and I kept that checklist, and I worked, and I would check them and make sure that I was dealing with them. I'd study, and I'd go, and I'd learn. And then I'd have my evaluation. You know what I was told? Seven times I was told, this year you need to work on this, and then you'll get that promotion. And next year... It was, because you know what false gods do? They let you meet the mark and then they change the mark. Hey, if you lose this much weight, then, and you know what culture does? It says, hey, you're too skinny. Skinny's not good, fat's good. So you gain weight, you know what culture does? It says, no, fat's not good. Skinny's good. Having hair is good. Having hair is not good. Having long hair is good. And having short hair is good. Being married is good. Not being married is good. Being wealthy is good. Being wealthy is a bad thing. Being poor and impoverished is good. No, it's not. It's all this. And we look and we go and we're going around and we're going, what in the world? And we're in bondage to every single one of those things. And God, by his revelation of himself to you, says this, I'm going to free you from the bondage of all of those things by revealing myself to you and giving you me. And the last way that God reveals himself isn't just the systematic dismantling of all other gods uh, in our lives. He does this. He says, and I really want to make sure that you know me. I want to make sure that you understand me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send me to you. I'm going to send myself to you in the form of my son, Jesus Christ. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of God, full of grace and of truth. That John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Folks, 
God is dismantling some things in your life. He's taking away the sweetness of their flavor to you. He's taking away certain things for you. He's dismantling them, and it's painful, and it's difficult, and it's hurtful. But he's doing that in order to present the true reality to you, the true truth to you, and that is himself in Christ Jesus. And he's saying that if you come to Christ, you'll never be disappointed. You'll experience loss and you'll experience pain. It's human life in this fallen world. But he says, you'll never be ultimately disappointed because I'm always with you. And I've made myself known to you in Jesus Christ. So for you who are here this morning, I want you to deal with this. Deal with Christ. Study him and come to a determination of what you believe about him. What you believe about him. He's saying, this is who I am. And you have to, basically what you have to determine is, I agree with that or disagree with that. Not that whether it's true or not. The debate out there too often is, is that true or not true? But the fact is, it is true. The debate should be, do I, am I going to believe it or not? And that's the final thing. The, the first thing we said was we have a problem. And the problem is we can't know God unless God reveals himself to us. Then we said there's a remedy. And the remedy is this, uh, that God uh, reveals himself to us. That he's passionate to be known to us. Uh, that he demonstrates the futility of our other gods, that he sends Christ into the world. And then the final thing that we are going to wrap with today is this. What's your response going to be? A choice has to be made. A choice has to be made. You're either going to say, I believe or I don't believe. Those are the only two choices uh, that are available for you. And some of you are going, Bill, you're in a Presbyterian church and you're speaking of choice. Uh, Yeah, I am. Uh, because I'm not going to get into all of the back theological stuff, but my framework is still this. God is the initiator of all faith. That no one would come to God unless God initiated the faith, because how can a dead person ever come to faith? How can a blind person see the light unless God opens the eyes? How can a person who's lame ever stand and walk to Jesus unless God gives him legs to walk? How can anybody choose God unless God changes the heart in regeneration and makes him choose? But you still have to choose. You still have to say, I'm going to believe. And you know what Pharaoh did over and over and over and over again? In the face of overwhelming reality, in the face of overwhelming truth, he said, I refuse to bend the knee. He said, I'm not going to believe. He said he hardened his own heart. That he hardened his heart. And then he tried to negotiate with God on his terms. He said, okay, God, I'll believe. I'll let you do these things, but only uh, if it's on my terms. So you can't take all your people and all your livestock. You can only take a little bit of them, but it's going to be on my terms. I'll believe in you, but only on my terms. And God says, you don't get to deal with me on your terms. You have to deal with me on my terms. And so this is a massive, it's a heavy question for us today and for you today. What's your response? As you've studied the scriptures, as you've looked around the created world, and you have enough evidence. You don't need more evidence, by the way. There's enough there. How are you going to respond? And if you say today, I choose not to believe, God says, be very careful because your heart starts to get hard, it starts to get calloused. And so Pharaoh was, Pharaoh was hardening his heart. But on the flip side of that was a very difficult theological truth that God was also hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I don't know how that all works. I've wrestled with this one. Uh, I'm, 
I want you to hear from me. I trust fully in the inerrancy of God's word. I trust God fully, but I don't understand this part fully. Of God is responsible and God is sovereign over all things, including uh, of salvation. But yet man is responsible for his own life in that sense. We're responsible and culpable for our actions. How those two come together, I don't understand, except for this much. They're in tension, but never in conflict. There's a tension in this passage. Go read it over and over again. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Here's what I seem to take away from this, and it's a warning And it's sobering. Be careful to say, I'm going to live my life and deal with God later. It doesn't work in human relationships. Hey, sweetheart, I love you, but I'm just not going to deal with you right now. I'm going to go deal with other things and then I'll come back. But I expect you to sit around and wait for me. It doesn't work in human relationships. And it does not work in cosmic universal relationships either. That God says, you don't want to deal with me today, fine. I'll harden your heart to the point where it's my judgment against you. And I don't understand it fully, but it scares me to death. And so here's what I know to be the remedy for that. You want to hear the remedy? It's an incredibly big secret, uh, but I want you to get it today. Come to God today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait. Because there may not be a tomorrow. Or maybe tomorrow is just another day for you to harden your heart against him. I plead with you in this way. God has revealed himself to you. Will you submit the knee and come to him today? Let him rule you. You're already being ruled. Something is ruling you. I'm inviting you to allow the God of the universe, the God of all justice and all mercy, the God who was willing to send his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save me and you. I'm I'm asking you, let him rule you, not anything else. And see, submit yourself to the Lord. And then he says, go and serve and worship him. That's my plea to you today. Let's pray. Father, these aren't easy things that we discuss and deal with, that they are true things. And so I pray that you would wrestle them in our hearts and that you would move in us. And though we may not understand everything, we know enough that we're willing to come and to follow you and to go and to serve. There's some here today, it's been very painful as you've been moving in their life and dismantling certain things and revealing yourself to them. And I pray that in the midst of that pain and at the end of that pain, they find you. The God who says, I suffered too to love you. And I'm willing to give you a hope that transcends this world. For others, their hearts are hard. I pray that you would soften them today. That by your spirit, you would give them a new heart, not of stone, but a heart of flesh. And that they would come and respond to the gospel. And Father, all of us would see you as our king and we would serve you. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.